Giles. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 24. We are returning again to the sermon. Uh, I almost missaid that. We're returning again, not to the Sermon on the Mount. We're returning again to the sermon called the Olivet Discourse. There we go. Matthew 24 and the Olivet Discourse. I'm going to go ahead and read Matthew chapter 24, beginning in verse 1 all the way through verse 31, and use that as our introduction and running start to the material that we need to address here this morning. Matthew 24, beginning in verse 1. Jesus came out from the temple and was going away when his disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to him. And he said to them, Do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another which will not be torn down. As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Jesus answered and said to them, See to it that no one misleads you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will mislead many. You will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened, for those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And in various places there will be famines and earthquakes. But all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. Then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you. And you will be hated by all nations because of my name. At that time, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. Because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Whoever is on the housetop must not go down to get the things out that are in his house. Whoever is in the field must not turn back to get his cloak. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babes in those days. But pray that your flight will not be in the winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be a great tribulation, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. Unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then, if anyone says to you, Behold, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe him. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders, so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Behold, I have told you in advance. So if they say to you, Behold, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. Or behold, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe them. For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. 
But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And, they will send, and he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet. And they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. May God bless the reading of his word. Beloved, we were examining, beginning in verse 15, last time, 15 through twenty. Eight, last time, this morning, 29 to 31, and in this section, 15 to 31, we said there are two unmistakable signs of the second coming of Christ. The disciples asked, what will be the sign? Jesus answers their question and gives them. Not one, but two. Two unmistakable signs. Why? So they will not be caught by surprise. Every generation of believing Jews have from Messiah given to them unmistakable signs of his return. And thus, they will be without excuse if they miss that great day. The first sign we looked at last week was found there in verse 15. It was the abomination of desolation. Occurring at the midpoint of the tribulation, after the first three and a half years when Antichrist, the little horn of Daniel 7, will set up an image of himself in the temple, in the holy of holies of the, of the rebuilt temple in Jerusalem, and there he will proclaim himself God and demand worldwide worship. That is the abomination that causes desolation. That is an un mistakable sign. The second unmistakable sign is here in verses 29 through 31, and I am calling that unmistakable sign the Shekinah glory. The second unmistakable sign of the second coming of Christ is the Shekinah glory. The Shekinah glory. Now, For some, this is a familiar term. For others, perhaps less familiar or maybe even something you've never been exposed to. So let me take a moment or two and to explain what I mean by the term Shekinah glory. The word Shekinah, Hebrew meaning dwelling, does not occur in the Bible. It is not a Bible word. But... It is what we would call a rabbinic euphemism. That is a word that that stands in for something. And what it stands in for is God's presence among mankind. When the rabbis spoke of the Shekinah glory of God, what they were referring to was God dwelling among his people. God dwelling among his people. Now, the Old Testament speaks of, of God dwelling among his people. He, the Old Testament affirms the reality that, caught, that God came to dwell among his old people, his, his people there in the Old Testament, his people Israel. And he did so 
uh, and gave them a visible sign that, that indicated his dwelling among them, his presence with them. That sign was the glory cloud, often called the Shekinah, the Shekinah glory. The dwelling glory. It was the cloud that that preceded them in the wilderness. A pillar of cloud by day. A pillar of fire by night. It is the cloud that descended upon the tabernacle. According to Exodus chapter 40 and verse 34. And filled the tabernacle and was visible brightly from within. It is that same glory cloud 500 years later that descended upon Solomon's temple, according to 1 Kings chapter 8, and and illuminated the, the temple, the holy of holies of the temple of Solomon, indicating God's dwelling, God's presence among his people. It is the Shekinah glory that the shepherds saw in the field, according to Luke chapter 2 and verse 9, when, when the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were very frightened. It is the Shekinah glory of God that was the star that the wise men saw and led them to the house where the Christ child was to be found. It is the Shekinah glory of God. Therefore, when Christ returns to dwell among his people in the millennial kingdom, his return will be accompanied by a dazzling display of the supernatural glory of God. The Shekinah of God will be visible once again. So here we are in verses 29 to 31, and I want to break it out for you. And I'll break it out in a similar fashion to last week, little bite-sized chunks. Last week there were four. This week there were only three, three verses, three chunks. But they are, they are packed. They are dense verses. The first nugget here to examine is verse 29, and I'm calling it a heavenly blackout. A heavenly blackout. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Two things stand out in this verse immediately. I think first and obviously here is the the supernatural cosmic disruption that occurs that blacks out the heavens. There is a a total blackout, a heavenly blackout. The sky is painted completely black. The canvas is completely cleared of any lesser glory, anything that would shine and, and, and in any way seek to detract from the incredible glory of the return of the king. But secondly... I observe here the timing of that disruption. Notice that Jesus says that it will occur immediately after the tribulation of those days. The blackout occurs immediately after the tribulation of those days. And it will result in the the gathering of Jesus' disciples, that is the elect, from one end of the globe to the other. You see it in verse 31. 
The four winds, one into the sky to the other, that's just an expression speaking about a worldwide regathering of the elect. The elect here are the believing remnant of Israel. Beyond that, over in chapter 25 and verse 31, there Jesus says, But when the Son of Man comes within his glory and all the angels with him, so it's a reference to the same event, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Notice the then. This is a question of timing. And what it means is simply this. Jesus is not and will not sit upon the throne of David until he returns in his glory following the tribulation, bringing the tribulation to an end, shattering his enemies, and establishing his kingdom here on earth. What that means, what that means is we are not in the kingdom. We are not in the kingdom. Our citizenship in the kingdom is assured. It is assured by virtue of the indwelling spirit of God within us that we receive in the moment of conversion. It is our passport, if you like, into the coming kingdom of God. But we are not there yet. Okay? We are not there yet. Now, let me go back in this verse to the cosmic disruptions again. Okay, let's talk about it in a moment. This blackout language that you see here, right? In those days, the sun will be dark and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky. This is blackout language. And this blackout language occurs in a number of places in the Old Testament. Probably your Bible here uh, indicates for you somehow that this is cited from Old Testament passages. And this blackout language is the language that is associated with what the Old Testament refers to as the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. That concept of the day of the Lord is a very important concept. The day of the Lord appears, and as I say, in many places by that terminology, day of the Lord. It also appears in many, many more places Uh, spoken to with an expression of that day, that day. If you begin to read your Old Testament carefully and begin to note the places where it will say in that day, on that day, you will begin to be amazed at how many references there are to the day of the Lord, both explicitly by using that expression and by this shorthand expression, that day. Now, what is the day of the Lord? We could engage in a very long study ourselves uh, for this, but we're not going to do that this morning, so I'm going to just kind of move through it quickly. But let me begin with a definition for you. Here's the definition of the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord refers to God's special interventions into the course of world events to judge his enemies, accomplish his purpose for history, and thereby demonstrate who he is, the sovereign God of the universe. It is God entering into space and time for the purpose of judging his enemies and accomplishing his 
purposes. The day of the Lord. Now, as I say, it's a big concept. But we're going to try to get our arms around it here in a short period of time. We won't exhaust it, but let me just give you a few things to to file away. And, And as you're reading your Old Testament, and even New Testament, where there are references to the day of the Lord there... Uh, If you can keep some of these in mind, I think it will sort out a lot of passages for you. So let me give you three keys. Three keys for sorting out this this expression, the day of the Lord. The first key is drawn from Jewish culture. Jewish culture. A Jewish day had two phases. Darkness, that is evening, followed by light, what we would call morning. Morning. You see it in Genesis chapter 1, verses 4 and 6. There was evening, there was morning, the first day. Okay? In other words, for the Jewish mind, the the day grows increasingly dark, and then it grows light. That is different than the way you and I process things. For us, the day is light followed by darkness. But for the Jewish mind, it is darkness followed by light. That's an important concept to hang on to and helps explain the many references to the day of the Lord that you find throughout the scripture. It is dark growing darker before light breaks upon it. That's number one. Number two, I want to take you to Joel. And I'm going to take you to the prophecy of Joel. So you need to flip back there to Joel. And the reason I want to go to Joel is because it, is, it contains some of the most well-known references to the day of the Lord. So we'll see if we can do this uh, quickly here. Look at uh, Joel chapter 1, verse 15. And let me just say this about, about Joel's prophecy. The beginning part of Joel's prophecy is about an invasion of locusts. An invasion of locusts. An army of locusts is coming to, to, to spread destruction and, and judgment and famine upon the land because of their, of their uh, disobedience and their faithlessness before God. Joel transitions from the, the description of the coming invasion of locusts and uses that as an illustration to speak of a future greater day of the Lord, which is far more devastating than the locust time. But notice how the the expression, the day of the Lord here, uh, for the locust carries into the expression of the future coming. So verse 15, alas, for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, it will come as destruction from the Almighty. Chapter 2, the end of verse 1, for the day of the Lord is coming, surely it is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Verse 11, chapter 2, at the end. The day of the Lord is indeed great and very awesome. And who can endure it? Over to chapter 3, or the end of chapter 2, rather, verse 31. The sun will be turned into darkness. Well, I'll pick it up in verse 30. I will display wonders in the sky and on the earth, blood, fire, and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Verse uh, chapter 3, verse 9. Proclaim this among the nations. Prepare a war. Rouse the mighty men. Let 
All the soldiers draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am a mighty man. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Bring down, O Lord, your mighty ones. Let the nations be aroused and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon grow dark and the stars lose their brightness. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. And the heavens and the earth tremble. But the Lord is a refuge for his people and a stronghold to the sons of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God, dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. So Jerusalem will be holy, and strangers will pass through it no more. And in that day, the mountains will drip with sweet wine, and the hills will flow with milk. And all the brooks of Judah will flow with water. And a spring will go out from the house of the Lord to water the valley of Shittim. Egypt will become a waste and Edom will become a desolate wilderness because of the violence done to the sons of Judah in whose land they have shed innocent blood. But Judah will be inhabited forever in Jerusalem for all generations and I will avenge their blood which I have not avenged for the Lord dwells in Zion. What we find here in this passage is that the day of the Lord is spoken of as a time of darkness and judgment. The prophet Amos, in Amos chapter 5, verses 18 to 20, I won't turn you there, but but he speaks about the the darkness, the, the terror of the day of the Lord. But interestingly here, there is also a, a promise of deliverance and blessing. I read that to you uh, beginning halfway through verse 16 and running through verse 21 of chapter 3. You can see it in chapter 2, verse 32, where it says, And it will come about that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there will be those who escape, as the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. So what we find here in the day of the Lord and the prophecies here of Joel, and they also are found in the other uh, prophecies. For example, Zechariah chapter 14, verses 1 to 9, speaks of this, is that the day of the Lord is a time of judgment, a time of darkness, a time of terror, and also a time of blessing. A time of blessing, a time of prosperity, a time of deliverance. That leads us to a conclusion. This is the third point for you. Okay, the first was that a Jewish day is dark followed by light. The second is that the day of the Lord is spoken of as a time of judgment and, and uh, darkness and a time of deliverance and prosperity and redemption. It leads us, third, to this conclusion, and that is that there are two ideas relating to the day of the Lord that are operating simultaneously in the text. Two Ideas, judgment and blessing. These two ideas are operating, and and I could say it this way, almost like Olympic uh, uh, rings, that there is an overlap of these two ideas, these two overlapping events. 
That leads to a certain terminology, and this is not biblical terminology, but I think it's helpful terminology. And that is that we can speak of the day of the Lord in two ways. We can speak of it as the uh, narrow day of the Lord and the broad day of the Lord. I have a chart for you, so uh, maybe that will help uh, make this a little clearer. A chart to try to talk about these concepts of a broad and a narrow day of the Lord. So what you see in the top of that chart here is the, uh, the, the label, the broad day of the Lord. And, and you see that it begins following, on the left-hand side of the chart, it begins following right, the rapture of the church. So the day of the Lord follows the removal of the church from this world to be with Christ. We then enter into the 70th week. The time of divine wrath, the, the period of the seven years of tribulation. All under the context of the broad day of the Lord. That is darkness. That is, that is dark and growing darker. But the broad day of the Lord also speaks about a time of prosperity, a time of deliverance, a time when Jerusalem will be repopulated, when the people will be regathered. This also is the, is the period of the millennium, the thousand years that follow the return of Christ. 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 10 refers to the day of the Lord. And there he says that the day of the Lord includes the destruction by fire of the heavens, the present heavens and earth. What we can conclude, I think, reasonably from all of this data put together is that the broad day of the Lord begins following the rapture and ends at the end of the millennial kingdom and the destruction of the present earth and heaven, which is then remade, and we enter into the eternal state. This is the broad day of the Lord. Dark and darker, followed by light. There is a narrow day of the Lord. This narrow day of the Lord is a reference to the second coming of Christ. The second coming of Christ. The, the moment when it is darkest... And then it begins to, it, it becomes light as Christ himself comes down. This narrow day of the Lord refers to the specific event of the second coming of Messiah. He will fight and destroy his enemies that have gathered against the nation of Israel at Armageddon. Right? You've heard the battle of Armageddon. It's actually not a battle. It's a campaign. It is the campaign of Armageddon. It is a lengthy period of time when the armies of the, of the world gather to crush Israel. And when uh, they then turn, when Christ descends and they turn on him, or they turn to oppose him, and he destroys them there. The book of Revelation speaks of this and says in, in, uh, in Revelation, uh, I believe it's... Um, uh, chapter 16, it speaks of this, this battle, uh, this, this campaign of Armageddon covering uh, 200 miles. It, it, it is the length of the nation of Israel. And the blood splashes to the, to the bridle of the horse, right? As the sickle is put in, even in the language of Joel, and the grapes are, are cut, and the, and the wine press is tread, and the blood pours out, Okay. They are gathered together, again, according to Joel 3, they are gathered together in what he calls the Valley of Jehoshaphat, verse 12. It's also speak, spoken of in verse 14 as the Valley of Decision, or the Valley of God's Verdict. This is the place, as it were, that the nations gather and are judged and destroyed by 
Messiah at his coming in the narrow day of the Lord. So put it all together back to Matthew chapter 24. And I think what we can conclude here is that when Jesus says immediately after the tribulation of those days, the the heavenly canvas is painted black, right? What we can conclude here, and then then the sign of the Son of Man, verse 30, what we can conclude from this is this is the narrow day of the Lord. This is the the moment when brightness, when light breaks into the darkness of the world. It is the time spoken of by Malachi, the prophet, Malachi chapter 4 and verse 5, as the great and terrible day of the Lord. By the way, the word translated terrible there is the same word translated awesome in Joel chapter 2 and verse 31. The great and awesome day of the Lord, the great and terrible day of the Lord. So, this heavenly blackout. Secondly, a dazzling display. We have a dazzling display, verse 30. And then, when the canvas goes black, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. There's a total blackout of the heavens, and then the light shines. The light shines. And the the shining forth of the Shekinah glory of God produces, according to Jesus, some interesting response. It brings about mourning. Do you see that? In verse 30, it brings about mourning. The, the beleaguered population of the earth at this time, at the, at the coming of Christ, responds with mourning, weeping, wailing. There are, there are two groups of people that are weeping and wailing at this moment, and they are weeping and wailing for two different reasons. The majority of the people who are weeping and mourning at this point are the unbelievers who have been gathered together under the, under the uh, authority of the Antichrist as part of his kingdom. And they are opposing Christ and their mourning, their weeping, their wailing comes about as a result of the extreme fear that overcomes them with the pending judgment of Messiah. Luke chapter 21, I'll take you over there. Luke 21 recounts for us Jesus' uh, words also given here on the, the Olivet, the Mount of Olivet, or uh, Olivet Discourse. Uh, but Luke records some things that Matthew didn't. Luke chapter 25, 26, notice what Luke records Jesus have, as having said. There will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth, dismay among nations in perplexity at the roaring of the sea and of the waves, men fainting from fear and the expectation of the things which are coming upon the world. Extreme fear that brings about fainting. Man is undone. The rebels are undone. They realize at the return of Christ, this narrow day of the Lord, that basically the jig is up, they're done with, and nothing awaits them now but judgment. But judgment, and in fact, uh, when we get to chapter 25, beginning in verse 31, Jesus will explain that judgment. So for the unbeliever, it is they are mourning because of the pending judgment. For the repentant remnant of Israel, there is also a time of mourning. Their mourning is the mourning over the reality that they have crucified their Messiah and that this coming one is indeed the king. 
You remember Jesus said in, in Matthew chapter 23 and verse 39, you will not see me again until you say what? Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord until you turn to me in faith. They will turn to him in faith and call out to him and they will mourn too, but it will not be a mourning and a weeping of one facing judgment. It will be a weeping and a mourning of one who has come to understand their sin. And they will re- it will be a weeping and a mourning of repentance and they will turn to the Messiah. And it is recorded for us in Zechariah chapter 12. So take a look at Zechariah chapter 12, beginning in verse 10. Actually, we can look at it in verse 8. In that day, remember I told you, you're going to find it everywhere. In that day, chapter 12, verse 8 of Zechariah's prophecy. In that day, the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And the one who is feeble among them in that day will be like David. And the house of David will be like God, like the angel of the Lord before them. They will get bold. In that day, I will set about to destroy all the nations that have come against Jerusalem. So the nations of the world have been gathered together for the campaign of Armageddon to destroy Jerusalem. Christ returns in the narrow day of the Lord to judge them, to destroy them. Verse 10. I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. In that day there will be great mourning in Jerusalem like the mourning of Hadarimon in the plain of Megiddo. That was the mourning of the nation of Israel at the death of the good king Josiah. The land will mourn, every family of it by itself, the family of the house of David by itself, their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself, their wives by themselves, and on it goes. Individual, personal mourning, repentance, and faith in Messiah. So their mourning will be a mourning of repentance, resulting in redemption. Resulting in redemption. All brought about by the dazzling display in verse 30. The Shekinah glory of the Son of Man that appears in the pitch black night sky. Now there's one other thing that happens. Verse 31. And he, that is Messiah, will send forth his angels with a great trumpet. And they will gather together his elect from the four winds and from one end of the sky to the other. The the third nugget here is what I'm calling a completed covenant. A completed covenant. So we have a heavenly blackout, a dazzling display, and now a completed covenant. And this is so cool. This is, this, this just, it just throws my heart. And I hope that I can do justice to it here in just a few minutes so that it will thrill your heart too. The second coming, the second coming of Jesus will result in the fulfillment of the ancient prophecies. All those ancient prophecies that spoke of a regathering of the nation of Israel, a restoration of the nation of Israel to their land in faith with God dwelling among them is fulfilled in the coming of Messiah. 
They are brought at this time into the bonds of the covenant. To the bonds of the covenant. In other words, they become partakers of the new covenant. That's what thrills my soul. It thrills my soul that the nation of Israel that has historically and presently remained obstinate in their unbelief, rejecting the truth of of the gospel, save a few individuals that God has plucked out. There will be a time, according to Paul in Romans chapter 11 and verse 26, when all Israel will be saved. It is the fulfillment of the ancient promises of God. It is is the, the certification that God's word is true and his promises never fail. And, and he who said to them, I will save you, I will redeem you, I will bring you to your land, I will restore your, your relationship to me and I will dwell among you. It's the same God who has promised that I will, he will never leave me. He will never forsake me. That there is nothing I can do to, 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 to fall out of favor with him because of my union with his son, the Messiah. My, my redemption, the, the glory of my redemption, the security of my redemption is, is dependent upon the character of God to keep his promises to his ancient people. And that's what's so thrilling here is because that's exactly what Jesus says he will do. The elect in this passage, right, he will send forth his angels of the great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect. The elect here in context is the believing remnant of Israel. It is those who have mourned him whom they have pierced. And he will gather them together. And this gathering, beloved, it was predicted by the prophets of old over and over and over again. Jeremiah chapter 27 Jeremiah 27. We're going to have to move quickly in this. Oh, the clock, my mortal enemy. Verse 12. In that day. I'm sorry, I'm, my problem is I'm uh, got to get to the right prophet. It's Isaiah. I said Jeremiah, didn't I? And I said it wrong. So uh, I'm glad you're listening. Be like Bereans. Okay. Say, that's not right, David, because it's not, because it's Isaiah. Isaiah 27. Isaiah 27 and verse 12. In that day, I'm telling you, it's everywhere. In that day, the Lord will start his threshing from the flowing stream of the Euphrates to the brook of Egypt, and you will be gathered up one by one, O sons of Israel. It will come about also in that day that a great trumpet will be blown, and those who were perishing in the land of Assyria and who were scattered in the land of Egypt will come and worship the Lord in the holy mountain at Jerusalem. Deuteronomy, way back in Deuteronomy chapter 30, Moses writes, So it shall be, verse 1, of all these things which have come 
on you the blessing and the curse which I have set before you. And you call them to mind in all nations where the Lord your God has banished you. And you return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart and soul according to all that I command you today, you and your sons. Then the Lord your God will restore you from captivity and have compassion on you and will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are at the ends of the earth, from there the Lord your God will gather you and from there he will bring you back. You will be regathered. You will be brought back. And this is where it's even cooler. This regathering, this bringing back, is so significant, so significant in the history of the nation of Israel that it will surpass what is presently for them the high point of their history, which is the Exodus. Jewish history now sees the Exodus as their high point, but the prophets tell us that this regathering will make the Exodus pale in comparison. Now we go to Jeremiah. Jeremiah 16. This, by the way, is... Why this regathering that is foretold here cannot be the regathering of after the Babylonian captivity. That is merely an illustration of the future regathering. This regathering is the one yet to come when Messiah returns. Jeremiah chapter 16, verses 14 and 15. Therefore, behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when it will no longer be said as the Lord lives who brought up the sons of Israel out of the land of Egypt, but as the Lord lives who brought up the sons of Israel from the land of the north and from all the countries where he had banished them. For I will restore them to their own land which I gave to their fathers. You won't talk about the 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 uh, exodus anymore, you'll talk about the regathering. Jeremiah chapter 23, speaking of the same event, beginning in verse 5. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is his name by which he will be called the Lord our righteousness. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when they will no longer say, as the Lord lives, who brought up the sons of Israel from the land of Egypt, but as the Lord lives, who brought up and led back the descendants of the household of Israel from the northland and from all the countries where I have driven them, then they will live on their own soil. And let me add another for you. Ezekiel. The prophet Ezekiel, chapter 31, or excuse me, chapter 11. And beginning in verse 17. How do I know that it is the new covenant that's being spoken of here in this gathering? Listen to the words of the prophet. Ezekiel, chapter 11, beginning in verse 17. Therefore, say, thus says the Lord God, I will gather you from the peoples and assemble you out of the countries among which you have been scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel. 
When they come there, they will remove all its detestable things and all its abominations from it. And I will give them one heart and put a new spirit within them. And I will take the heart of stone out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my ordinances and do them. Then they will be my people and I shall be their God. Beloved, that is the language of the new covenant. That is the language that the prophet speaks again in chapter 36, beginning in verse 24. For I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to observe my ordinances. And you will live in the land that I gave your forefathers. So you will be my people and I will be your God. Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Save your people. Notice in 24 and 31, Matthew 24 and 31, that Jesus says he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet. Let me just suggest this to you to think about. The trumpet first appears in scriptures in Exodus chapter 19, where the trumpet is blown It calls for the assembly of Israel. It is to draw together the assembly of Israel for the the establishment of the Mosaic Covenant. To bring them into the covenant. When Christ returns, he says, the angelic messengers will sound a great trumpet. I'd like to suggest to you that it is the great trumpet that will summon together the faithful of Israel and bring them into the bond of the new covenant. Like they were brought into the old, they will be brought into the new. I would like to continue on this. This uh, lights my fire. But I'm going to have to stop because there are more we must do together. Let me pray. Father, again, it seems week in and week out, we, uh, we move fast. We cover a lot of ground. There is so much here. It just requires us to think It requires us to process. It requires us to put together pieces of a puzzle. But, oh, Lord, thank you that you have given us the pieces. Thank you for your spirit who enables us to fit them together. But thank you most of all that you are true to your word, that your word is entirely true and you are entirely faithful, and that the certainty of our redemption is linked to the certainty of the redemption of the nation of Israel and just as assuredly as you will return them to their land, you will save us. Our Father, help us to come to understand, appreciate, and rejoice in that reality. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.